Air quality alerts have been issued in large parts of the United States as intense wildfires continue to burn in Canada and smoke blankets New York City. Flights have been delayed and events have been cancelled, with many choosing to wear a face mask when they leave the house. Winds have pushed the smoke southward towards central New York, but now it's extending into parts of Virginia and Indiana. It comes after Canadian officials call for help from other countries to fight over 400 fires nationwide. That's from a Channel 10 Australia news report telling us about the massive bushfires in Canada and the smoke washing down over the US. And this is the latest episode of Climate Conversations and I'm your host, Robert McLean. Welcome, it's great to have you on board. This podcast is assembled here in Shepparton, in Northern Victoria, Australia, on the land of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen and unceded land of the Yorta Yorta people, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Before I go any further, I urge you to follow this podcast, because if you do that, you'll be automatically alerted every time I publish a new episode. Now please don't forget to check out the show notes, as you'll find at least two stories in there that tell you more about the Canadian bushfires, or they call them wildfires in America or Canada. From the New York Times, you have an opinion piece that explains something more. And from the Rolling Stone magazine, you have a series of pictures that illustrate how the Canadian bushfires, or the Canadian wildfires, have impacted on New York. Please check them out in the show notes. Anna Rose has been talking about the climate crisis since she was a teenager. In fact, 14 or even younger. She eventually became the co-chair of the Australian Youth Climate Coalition. And then in 2013, she came to Shepparton at the invite of Slap Tomorrow for a forum which she shared the stage with about three other speakers and, and spoke to more than 600 people. Anna is now the CEO of Environmental Leadership Australia, a team that works to lay the groundwork for bipartisan support for more ambitious climate policies at both state and federal levels. Anna was back in Shepparton in February this year for a climate and employment summit she helped organise for the federal member for the seat of Nichols, Mr Sam Birrell. And just recently Anna was one of the speakers on a Rotary event, a Rotary webinar about climate and peace. It was during that webinar that she echoed the thoughts of Canadian climate scientist Catherine Hayhoe in saying, And if you haven't watched it already, there's a really great TED Talk um, by an amazing climate scientist, Catherine Hayhoe, who says the biggest thing you can do to solve climate change is talk about it because we can't solve the problem we don't talk about. Now, when I was back as a 14-year-old caring about climate, you know, I, I honestly felt like I was the only one talking about it in my community. And now it's in the media, local media, you know, state, federal, global. You can't open a newspaper and now and not read a story about climate change or, or climate solutions. So we've really changed that. And we all have a hugely important opportunity to influence the people around us by talking about it. You don't have to know all of the science. Talk about why it matters to you, whether that be you've experienced bushfires or floods or you're worried about your kid's future or you're saving money from having solar panels or a battery because it's really expensive to buy electricity that's based on fossil fuels now. So find your story and you can talk about that. Climate Conversations has tracked down the Catherine Hayhoe TED Talk 
So here's a small part of it now and you'll find a link to the entire talk in the show notes. The fact that the number one predictor of whether we agree that climate is changing, humans are responsible, and the impacts are increasingly serious and even dangerous, has nothing to do with how much we know about science or even how smart we are, but simply where we fall on the political spectrum. Does a thermometer give us a different answer depending on if we're liberal or conservative? Of course not! But if that thermometer tells us that the planet is warming, that humans are responsible, and that to fix this thing, we have to wean ourselves off fossil fuels as soon as possible, well, some people would rather cut off their arm than give the government any further excuse to disrupt their comfortable lives and tell them what to do. But saying, yes, it's a real problem, but I don't want to fix it, that makes us the bad guy, and nobody wants to be the bad guy. So instead, we use arguments like, it's just a natural cycle, it's the sun, or my favorite, those climate scientists are just in it for the money. <laughs> I get that at least once a week. But these are just science-y-sounding smokescreens that are designed to hide the real reason for our objections, which have nothing to do with the science and everything to do with our ideology and our identity. So when we turn on the TV these days, it seems like Pundit X is saying, it's cold outside, where's global warming now? And Politician Y is saying, for every scientist who says this thing is real, I can find one who says it isn't. So it's no surprise that sometimes we feel like everybody is saying these myths. But when we look at the data, and the Yale Program on Climate Communication has done public opinion polling across the country now for a number of years, the data shows that actually 70% of people in the United States agree that climate is changing. And 70% also agree that it will harm plants and animals and it will harm future generations. But then when we dig down a bit deeper, the rubber starts to hit the road. Only about 60% of people think that it will affect people in the United States. Only 40% of people think it will affect us personally. And then when you ask people, do you ever talk about this? Two-thirds of people in the entire United States say never. And even worse, when you say, do you hear the media talk about this? Over three-quarters of people say no. So it's a vicious cycle. The planet warms, heat waves get stronger, heavy precipitation gets more frequent, hurricanes get more intense. Scientists release yet another doom-filled report. Politicians push back even more strongly, repeating the same science-y-sounding myths. What can we do to break this vicious cycle? The number one thing we can do is the exact thing that we're not doing. Talk about it. But you might say, I'm not a scientist. How am I supposed to talk about radiative forcing or cloud parameterization in climate models? We don't need to be talking about more science. We've been talking about the science for over 150 years. Did you know that it's been 150 years or more since the 1850s when climate scientists first discovered that digging up and burning coal and gas and oil is producing heat-trapping gases that is wrapping an extra blanket around the planet? That's how long we've known. It's been 50 years since scientists first formally warned a U.S. president of the dangers of a changing climate, and that president was Lyndon B. Johnson. 
And what's more, the social science has taught us that if people have built their identity on rejecting a certain set of facts, then arguing over those facts is a personal attack. It causes them to dig in deeper, and it digs a trench rather than building a bridge. So if we aren't supposed to talk about more science, or if we don't need to talk about more science, then what should we be talking about? The most important thing to do is, instead of starting up with your head, with all the data and facts in our head, to start from the heart. To start by talking about why it matters to us. To begin with genuinely shared values. Are we both parents? Do we live in the same community? Do we enjoy the same outdoor activities? Hiking, biking, fishing, even hunting. Do we care about the economy or national security? Now, please don't forget, you'll find a link to that Catherine Hayhoe TED Talk in the show notes. Now we have Elise Cunningham from Friends of the Earth, the Sustainable Cities Program, talking about better bus services for particularly West Melbourne. And as you will hear, this is on Dirt Radio. Dirt Radio. Organic. Friends of the Earth. Activism. Underground. Political action. Necessary. Wind farms. Indigenous struggles. Land rights. Anti-nuclear. Nanotechnology. Climate change. Coal barons. Mining magnates. Activists. Bull. Educating. Communities. Transforming. Communities. Mobilizing a sustainable planet. Get involved now. Friends of the Earth. Friends of the Earth. Friends of the Earth. Dirt Radio. Good morning and welcome to Dirt Radio. I'm your host, Elise Cunningham, and I'm the coordinator of the Sustainable Cities Collective at Friends of the Earth Melbourne. We are broadcasting live today from the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people in the Kulin Nation and pay our respects to elders past and present and also say a big hello to all First Nations people listening and acknowledge the pivotal role that First Nations people play in the struggle for environmental and social justice. This is Dirt Radio, Friends of the Earth show on 3CR, where we dig in deep about what is going on around um, at Friends of the Earth and in the wider grassroots activist community. Um, today's topic on the show, I'll be talking to our guest about the changes to Melbourne's new bus contracts that were announced last week on the 10th of May and what these mean for the public. And this one is close to my heart. It is part of the Sustainable Cities Collective and our Better Buses campaign, which has been fighting for a transformation of Victoria's bus network from the long sort of convoluted routes that you see to a simple grid of fast, frequent and connected electric buses. Um, So most of our organising efforts have been focused on Melbourne's western suburbs, which is, you know, some of the fastest growing areas in the country. And our campaign has connected community groups from across the West and enabled us to share stories from those facing some of the highest levels of transport disadvantage in our state. Um, And one of our key asks is that the government prioritise and properly consult communities in the West um, when it comes to the funding and time commitments um, in bus reform in this term of government. Um, But another ask of ours is that they resolve the contractual issues that could eventually enable this route reform that we are asking for. The Australian Broadcasting Commission's television program, The Drum, took a look at the big issue of climate change and how corporations are adapting. 
Here's a segment now from that episode of The Drum, and you'll find a link to the entire event in the show notes. Well, as the country pursues the big climate target of achieving net zero fossil fuel emissions by 2050, an investment research group has given a sobering update on the progress. Morningstar says not one Australian stock exchange listed company is on track to meet the target. Some of the worst offenders are in the resources sector, but the telecommunications and IT sectors also have a lot of catching up to do to become carbon neutral. Researchers hope the information may prompt investors to pressure companies, uh, making the least progress towards lower carbon emissions to do better. Here's the drums, David Taylor. To limit global warming, countries, including Australia, need to sharply reduce their carbon emissions over the next three decades. The Paris Agreement has told us that we need to limit climate change to 1.5 degrees um, if possible, or otherwise face um, catastrophic climate change. Governments can help and households can chip in, but analysts say without big business doing its bit, Australia won't achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Research from Morningstar has found not one of Australia's largest 300 companies is on track to achieve internationally accepted climate goals. And I didn't expect to see that, to be honest, because um, you know there's been a lot of uh, reporting done by companies. There's been a lot of stakeholder engagement. Um, shareholders are increasingly asking for companies to provide net zero um, commitment and reporting. And while companies, Morningstar says, are strong in reporting their emissions reductions commitments, their actual carbon emissions are well up on where they need to be. According to the report, big conglomerate West Farmers, container company Brambles and Qantas Airways have the biggest carbon footprints. More broadly, it's IT, telecommunications and energy companies that pollute the most, while real estate firms and the banks pollute the least. Erica Hall says those with the biggest carbon footprint release emissions at the start of the production process and at the end, when the product is being used by the consumer making it very challenging for these firms to control their emissions. And that is the part that is more complex because it isn't in their direct control. It's supply chain effectively, but that is where typically the bulk of the emissions occurs. And there's another problem. This week's GDP, or economic growth figures, show the economy has slowed to a crawl. The government wants Australia's renewable energy transition, which will also help companies lower their carbon emissions, to power the economy into next decade. A lot is riding on the big end of town lifting its game on climate change. Uh, And we just have got a response from uh, Qantas while we've been in the studio saying that, quote, the findings in this report lack credibility. Qantas has set out clear and ambitious targets to decarbonise our business, including reducing emissions by 25% by 2030 and net zero emissions by 2050. We remain on track to meet those targets, the statement from Qantas said. We did seek to speak to Brambles and West Farmers uh, and haven't yet heard back from them. Uh, But Sally, on the, the substantive elements of this report, what did you make of that? 
So I think this is a really difficult topic because the question is what does good look like? We still don't have an answer for. In terms of what is the expectations and what these organisations are being held to account. So I think in the report I, I personally struggled with it. I think the reality is that this is a really tough topic. You are asking organisations to look at how all of the ways that their scope 1 emissions, scope 2 emissions, etc. How these emissions are then uh, being counted and then you're asking them to then make a, a decision about buying offsets and buying certificates that can help uh, shift that. The market is still transitioning. We're not at a mature market where, you know, I go to the supermarket and say, I'm going to buy that certificate and I know exactly what it means. And I guess to give you a, a sense of it, some of those certificates that come out, you know, it's not that they're intentionally not meeting their requirements, it's that they didn't know that that's what that it meant. And so there's a lot to be done in being able to standardise that approach uh, and there's a lot to be done around making sure that we just give uh, a little bit of time in a developing market for some of those businesses to really understand what it is that they need to, to meet and just you know give them a break uh, because there's just it's a big job, it needs to be done and we all need to sort of work around how we can do it together and help them rather than you know basically attack them for the it. The pressure must be good though to ensure that they're actually like it's that accountability measure isn't it? It is but I think the accountability has to come with sets of standards that they know what they're working towards and what that looks like because then otherwise you're really kind of judging them by different interpretations um, and I think there's just so much that needs to be done in that space. There's first of all there's not enough certificates in the market or quality certificates in the market for you to offset. If we needed to we just don't have it. We're not growing enough the right types of projects that can help us deal with that emissions and so therefore some of these organisations are almost being held captive to a lot less quality certificates uh, which obviously uh, are, are a risk and so therefore one of the things that most corporates are really working hard to do is actually hang on we thought we were getting a certificate look let's just understand what that really means and how can we do other things rather than just offset what can we do to better to better manage it so I was really uh, very encouraged to be able to see um, some of the work that Minister Plibersek is doing is around the um, the scheme that she the voluntary schemes there and I was also really encouraged at the AFR summit when there was almost literally a thousand people all there going how do we do this you know trying to learn trying to to get on top of it one of the things of the, the report said that there was a significant misalignment uh, around what was being said was happening and then what was actually happening and, and that quite even worse, no Australian listed companies on track to reach net zero by 2050. Is this can't, that can't all be just about the, the structures because there have been some in place for quite a while now. So the, there have been a number of certificates that you could purchase, but the volumes around the accessibility to them has been really tight. Uh, I think what that is, I mean, I would just challenge to say is what, what baseline, what benchmark is that applying to? Uh, I think that there's a, there's a lot to be done in terms of uh, really people actually knowing what it is that they're like, what is the quantum of emissions that they're trying to deal with? Um, and, and I guess let's um, not deny that ultimately, uh, and I, I hold this view, is that most of the emissions come from scope 2 emissions, which are electricity emissions. And there's a role here for all of us to be able to decarbonise the grid. If we can achieve that, we can give a massive uh, assistance to all of um, industry in order to be able to kind of make the grid uh, green. And at that point, then I think that's going to be a, a much more smoother conversation. But obviously, that you know, we heard this week there's a lot of challenges to be able to, uh, you know, turning our green targets. We saw Queensland come through with mm. another target uh, in terms of um, 
um, in terms of renewable energy, but obviously we've got to solve transmission to do that. And without solving transmission, we're not going to get the renewable generation. And, and I guess, you know, we've got to start somewhere. And I, my opinion is actually these, some of these solutions will resolve themselves if we kind of focus on what is the core issue. And the core issue is that we need to get renewables on the grid. Uh, Corinne, uh, how much of this to you is about the systems that are in place that we just heard Sally talking about? Uh, or on the other side of this, is that there aren't the right levers or oversight or even fines? Yeah, so I'm a lawyer, so I'm not going to give anyone a break. I'm hardwired to not give <laughs> anyone a break. <laughs> so I, I think one of the, the difficulties that corporations based in Australia have with the argument that they're trying their best, they're doing their best, they're not quite sure what they're meant to be doing, is the fact that they're not progressing at the same rate as corporations in other countries. So obviously there are models out there that are more effective. We're not talking about mum and dad operations that don't have enough money to be able to dedicate themselves a particular um, wing of their their firm or their business to look specifically at their emissions targets and their sustainability. We're talking about enormous companies and Qantas doesn't have one person doing their media statements who replied to the drum tonight. They've got hundreds of people who do that. They could also have hundreds of people who were working on this solution as well. So I'm not going to give them a break. Um, in terms of what they do know and what they don't know and whether they have no parameters within which they're working. Um, if we're talking about greenwashing, and you see that, uh, I think examples of greenwashing, we think more about um, smaller examples of that, like uh, you go into the supermarket and you pick up a brand of um, paper towel and it says that it's recycled and you get it home and it's got pictures of green leaves all over <laughs> it and happy little pandas and babies breathing green air and you read on the back of it recycled packaging around the outside of it. So those kinds of things are misleading. That's what we think of when we think of greenwashing. But greenwashing is also large corporations saying that they are meeting their targets when they're not because it leads you to take... Um, to decide where you're going to spend your money and you're going to spend your money with the organisation that you think is more ethically and environmentally aligned with your own values. And if they're not actually doing what they're saying they're doing, that is misleading and deceptive conduct under the Australian consumer law. They might also be breaching um, um, ASIC guidelines as well. And all of that leads to fines and penalties if ASIC and the ACCC have the resources and the wherewithal to chase down all of these. I mean, it's like playing whack-a-mole. You've got a, a thousand of them going at once. Yeah. You've got to pick. You've got to pick one of them and go for it. But unless they do pick one and go for it and set an example for everybody else, we're probably still going to see this slow-moving. Oh, we'll figure it out eventually. But oh, we're not quite sure what we're meant to do um, until someone cracks the whip and says, "This is what you have to do." Bloody get on it. Mm. Yeah, there does seem like um, there are some examples where uh, there's quite accounting gymnastics going on, and we've we've, been, we've all read uh, situations like this. So we talked about symbolism and <laughs> things behind it earlier. This feels like there there are uh, examples this where you think, no, we're just getting a bit of spin here. We need some substance behind it, even though it's complex and we we recognise all of that. 
But um, when you're, you know, in your superannuation fund and you're in, a, in with, with good intentions trying to sort of tick the section where you think you're getting something and, it, and when it turns out to not be that, I think we rightly feel a bit uh, mis misused. Yeah, it's about well, well, the regulator made some really good points about that. They said that they, it's really an issue of overreaching sometimes mm -hmm. rather than it's being intentional. Si vous voulez que les gens euh, changent d'habitude, il faut que les alternatives fonctionnent. La qualité des transports en commun doit changer complètement. C'est-à-dire qu'il n'y a pas de baguette magique. Ce n'est pas un mode de transport qui va vous résoudre tous les problèmes. Mais il faut vraiment être multimodal. Alors, mon nom c'est François Bauch, je suis vice-premier ministre, ministre de la mobilité et des travaux publics et de la défense. Alors, le Luxembourg a décidé de rendre l'accès. That is from a Euronews Green Story, which has the headline Europe's richest country made public transport free. Could other countries do the same? You'll find a link for that story in the show notes. Next we have a piece from the New York Times written by David Wallace Wells. The headline for David's story is As smoke darkens the sky, the future becomes clear. His story begins. My father, who died of lung cancer, used to say that as soon as people inhaled their first cigarette, they immediately knew, if they weren't in denial, that they were harming themselves. I felt the same way on Tuesday in New York my eyes itching and my nose burning and the taste in my throat like I'd swallowed a charcoal bonbon. This had to be bad. The sky wasn't quite the apocalyptic orange of Australia's black summer or San Francisco's day the sun didn't rise, but it had grown confrontationally eerie, enveloping the city in a blanket of toxic smoke. Yes, we've reached the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Now you'll find links for all those stories I've mentioned in the show notes, along with some others. So until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind. For everyone we meet is fighting a great battle. And please, I'd love to hear from you. I want to know what you think about my podcast. And you can contact me via email at number 7 at icloud.com. And please, if you enjoyed this episode, and I really hope you did, Please share it with a friend because we all need to know all we possibly can about how we confront the climate crisis. As someone once said, this ain't going to be easy. And it was Canadian author and thinker Naomi Klein who said, to change everything, we need everyone. And that, has to be said, includes you. So please join us as we try to counter the climate crisis. Do what you can from where you are. Now take care.